0: to trust God to be the provider of your needs. God is faithful. Amen. Amen. And so as we give, I want you to remember, Lord, I trust you to provide for me. I trust you to provide for my family. I know that the source is you and I give out of the abundance of that source, knowing that you are a trustworthy God who is faithful to my family. Amen. Let's go ahead and give this morning.
1: church good morning all right so to kick today off uh, I always liked going to well I didn't like going to the doctor's office the part I did like was the optical illusion books that they would have in there do you guys know what I'm talking about where you try to make yourself go cross-eyed which my mom always told me not to do because that you'd stay that way or something like that but the doctor loves it if you do it I guess but uh, um, I I like those optical illusions And, and then there's one where they do zoomed in pictures and you try to guess what that object is have you ever done those So I've got a couple of those uh, for us to do together. This is a very spiritual activity and exercise, so it's important that you get this right, okay? This will determine the health of your soul. No, I'm just kidding. But um, uh, let's take a look at this first picture, if you'll go to it, Priscilla, and try to tell your neighbor, don't yell it out if you think you know what it is, but this is a zoomed in picture of something. Try to determine what it is. Are we ready? Are we ready? I said, don't yell it out. Thanks, everyone, for yelling. I said, tell your neighbor, okay, here's what it is, hit the space bar there. It is broccoli, all right? Now, when we move on, this is, this is a rule-following exercise. This is not ruin it for everyone around you exercise, okay? So, we're going to go to the next one. I Hopefully, they'll get more challenging. So, here's our next object. It's something industrial, maybe a part of a car. Anybody know? It is a guitar string, a guitar string. Okay, okay. Here, let's go to our next one. We've got this. <laughs> All right, it is the striker on a matchbox. Who got that one? Who, who got that one? Okay, we got one. Good, okay. Here's, here's our last one. Now, if you, anyone gets this one, it's a doozy. I'm going to give you Nate's car, okay? So, so this one's worth a lot. This is a high-value guess, right? Here, we, here it is. What in the world is that? Hold, hold on. It's coming to him. It's like, oh, we got, okay, here it is. It is a bell pepper seed, bell pepper seed. I wouldn't have guessed that one. I had, I had to have the thing help me. Uh, that's so, so there's things when, when they're zoomed in, the way our brains interpret uh data is by putting together, scientists say, by putting together individual details of an image, but into, uh, into a familiar pattern we understand, and then we assign it to what that is. So when we look at an object, when we look at something, say this chair, we're seeing the patterns in the chair, the shape, the things like that, and it attaches it to something in our brain that goes, that's a chair. The problem when we look at very small, zoomed-in images is we lack the context and the perspective of the greater thing, and then we lose its meaning, right? We're looking at that small item, and we go, I have no idea what that is, Oh, obviously a bell pepper seed, right? We, we, don't, we don't know what that object is um, because it, we don't have the context. And this is really how a lot of our lives are lived out. If you think about it, we live in the details. We live in the individual moments. We do a lot of individual things, but then we go, what's the meaning of all, the, all of this? Uh, think about it. We go, we go and we buy detergent at, this, at the store, or we go to work, or we go to class. We have lunch with a friend, and it's all these individual small microcosms but then when we were looking at these zoomed in details we go what's the meaning of all of this what's what's all of these small images mean is it just a random convergence of of small events or is there more to it so uh, last week we, we left off with one of the judges of Israel. Remember we talked about Jephthah and the tragic story of Jephthah and his daughter. Well, our next story is set in the same turbulent time that's going on in Israel. But it's kind of, it, it, it lacks the running people through with swords element. Sorry guys, it's just a lot less violent. But this story takes place in this exact same time period. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. So we're going to be in Ruth... I nearly read the whole book. It's only four chapters long, but uh, I, I'm going to summarize some things so that you aren't sitting too long through me reading. listening to me read. I know it's a lot like listening to uh, James Earl Jones read. It's very exciting, but uh, uh, Ruth chapter one, starting in verse one, it says, in, "In the days when the judges, right, the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man, Elimelech from Bethlehem in Judah, left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife Naomi and two sons with him. So so there's this famine that comes to this region and and famine in the region of Bethlehem in this portion of Israel is actually not very uncommon. It was a pretty common occurrence because it's a very arid landscape first and foremost, but also Bethlehem's land drops off towards what's called a chalk wilderness. Uh, It's got this east watershed where all the water just runs off the land. So even if there is some good water, some water that comes to the land, it runs off easily towards the Dead Sea and away from, from where they're sitting. So it's a very challenging Piece of land. So this uh, this uh, this famine comes on the land. So Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons leave their ancestral home and they journey to the land of Moab, where rainfall actually falls even less, but it's at least more reliable overall than what they can expect in Bethlehem. So they move to an even drier area, but it's more uh, it's more regular in when it does fall. And so we know that the famine has to be super bad because. No Israelite would willingly move to Moab if they had any choice, unless they were under dire straits. It's like, live or die, fine, we'll go to Moab. Fine! We're going to Moab. It was a bad situation. You see, the Moabites, if you read through their history, were just the worst enemies of Israel. They hated each other's guts. They thought they were disgusting, the Israelites. Um, You see, Moabites actually came from the same stock as Israelites. If you go back to Abraham, Abraham had a nephew whose name was Lot, right? And Lot's descendants became the Moabites. And you see, the thing about the Moabites mean is they're, they're an incestuous background they've got. Because the name Moab actually means, he is of my father. Meaning Lot's daughter named her son that of his, her father. It's an incestuous background, and so Israelites view them as as uh, vile, as a, a gross people. They don't want to be have anything to do with. And there's war that goes on between these two regions constantly. As a matter of fact, this conflict will rage into the era of the kings for several generations of kings between the Moabites and the Israelites. So there was this tension between these groups and yet they were in such bad straits they had to move to Moab in order to survive. So, um, so Elimelech, Elimelech and Naomi, they bite the bullet, they move to Moab to survive and while they're there, Elimelech, her husband, passes away. And after he dies, uh, their sons marry two Moabite women, but about 10 years later, both of the sons die as well. I don't know if it's in the same incident, if something tragic happened, or they got sick and they died, but these two sons died as well, leaving Naomi, who's a widow, with no husband, with no children, and with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, which I am going to be so determined not to say Oprah at some point this morning. So, so these two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, are left with Naomi and these three women are standing there and and the famine comes to an end in Israel and Naomi decides, well, I'm going to return home. There's really nothing keeping me here. And so she tells her two daughters-in-law, I'm heading home. And so they all three start walking down the road back towards where Naomi's from. And she turns back to them and it says this in verse eight, on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with security of another marriage. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. So Naomi recognizes that there's nothing that's holding Ruth and Oprah to stay... Ah! There, I just did it once to get it out of the way. Orpah! holding Ruth and Orpah to her. There's nothing that is holding them in there. Their family, these two women's family are still in Moab. That's where they're from. Um, their, their security structure, their, their family structure is all there. So uh, Naomi knows that the life of a widow is going to be extremely hard. In this culture, in Israelite culture as well, men are the power holders. Men are the landowners. You know how we have set up right now where where you get a life insurance policy and if something were to happen to me, my life and my fortune, which is massive, will pass on to my to my wife. Then it did not. Your wealth, whatever you have for land, passes on to your son or if you don't have a son, the direct descendant, whatever's closest to you. But women were not owners of those things. So when when Ruth or when Naomi moves back to Israel, she's not uh going going to get to take on what what Elimelech left for her, but she's going back to nothing. And so she recognizes this is going to be a difficult life for me. But not only that, the life of an unmarried foreign widow would be extremely hard, especially a Moabite widow. So she sees, this is not going to be an easy life for you. Go home to your families. Go home and you can even remarry. You can can start over. You can start fresh. There's there's resource there. And yet, Ruth and Orpah start to consider what they're going to do. And and really, it's a challenging decision. Because to go home is where all the resources To go to Israel, they would be as welcome there as a ham sandwich at, at a bar mitzvah. They would not be welcome at all. So so they realize there's nothing wrong with going home. They could be with their support structures, even remarry and start over. But And Orpah actually makes this decision. It's the more desirable and rational decision to go back to her family. But Ruth insists on moving forward with Naomi. Ruth says, I'm going to continue on with you. It's a decision that, that is marked by Naomi's bitterness. Naomi changes her own name. She says, you can call me Mara now because I'm bitter. So she's going home with a bitter old lady <laughs> to a land that doesn't want her. To to an unknown situation. So she's stepping out into this. And and many of us are familiar with the statement that Ruth made in verse 16. Ruth replies to her, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And this moment of decision for Ruth and for Orpah is is not an easy one. What's the right choice in this situation? If I were there, put myself in this situation, what would I do? I don't think that's an easy choice to make. And is there necessarily a wrong choice in this situation? We often like to think of our next steps as really clear-cut, right? I like to think of the right and the wrong, the black and white. Do this, don't do this. The yes and the no, the very just easy to, to know what the right thing is. But things aren't always so clear in moving forward into the next steps we take. Sometimes those steps aren't so clear. What job should I take? What school should I attend? What relationship do I begin or what relationship do I end? Should I sell my home? Should I take this trip? You think about these that are not so much black and white yet, you know, very clear, clear-cut answers, but these things we grapple with. And you think about the thousands of small decisions that we make each day. What am I gonna eat for lunch? Which direction am I gonna go to go home? And when we're young, a lot of these decisions are made for us. We don't realize it when we're kids of how much we We don't think about what am I having for dinner? What am I doing here? It's just provided for us. I don't, I don't decide how I'm getting home or whatever. That's decided for us. But as we get older, the more those decisions begin to pile up for us to make and the weightier those decisions get, right? They're not just the small decisions of if I'm going to have a, a turkey sandwich with my lunch or whatnot. They become bigger and more, uh, more weighty decisions. I recently heard a quote that said this. It says, sure, I used to make mistakes when I was younger, but now that I'm older, I've learned how to make different, far more serious mistakes. Um, we have big decisions that, that await us as we get older, right? As we, as, we, as we age. And so for many of us, though, we hit a moment where we, I would call it paralysis by analysis. Have you ever heard that term? Where there's these decisions to make and there's so much just analyzing all the details and what the fallout could be and this and that that we actually don't end up moving on anything. And and it's this fear of making the wrong decision. And sometimes we become so consumed with searching out, God, what's your perfect will for me? That we forget sometimes the best way to move forward is simply to ask, God, will the decision I make give you glory? Will the decision I make glorify you, God? And so we try to forecast the end result. We try to predict the big picture. We try to, try to, uh, from our decision, say, well, well, this is going to lead to this and this and this. And then we try to forecast this bigger decision. And Ruth had no idea what she's saying to Naomi. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Your God is going to be my God. Your people, my people. She didn't know what this would lead to. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. If you don't want to know how the story ends, plug your ears right now. But this would ultimately lead to her great-grandson being the greatest king of Israel, yep. King David. Did she know that that was going to be in the future? Did she understand how this would unfold? Don't underestimate the power of the small decisions And saying, God, does this give you glory? Don't underestimate those. You see, our decisions will determine our direction, and our direction ultimately determines our destiny. Our decisions determine our direction, and our direction determines our destiny. So Ruth makes this decision not unpacking all that it entails, I'm sure, but saying, I'm going to be faithful in this. And so her faithfulness in these small decisions, in these day-to-day moments, really impacts generations, and it's the same for us. Our decisions, have you ever thought about the ripple effect of these decisions we make, how they can affect generations to come? Degrees of separation from us, we don't even know how it touches lives. And so Ruth makes this decision, and she returns to Bethlehem with Naomi, And and it says here, it's really important to catch this, she returns to Bethlehem in the spring. In the spring. So she goes back at the beginning of what's the barley harvest that they're having there. And in in verse 2 of chapter 2 it says, So one day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who was kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain Behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father in law, Elimelech. So Ruth goes out and starts this activity, it's called gleaning. And what gleaning is, is the harvesters would go through and cut all the grain, whatever it might be. In this in this case, uh, they were picking up barley and they wouldn't pick up every single stock. They would intentionally leave a little bit behind for the poor, for the widows, for orphans to come and gather. And so this was essentially uh, Israel's welfare system. And so she was going along gathering what she could to, to uh, hobble together a dinner for them so that they could survive. And so um, as Ruth is gleaning in these fields, she informs Naomi of the owner of the field. She says, his name's Boaz. And it turns out Boaz is this relative of of her father-in-law, Elimelech, who had passed away. And so in verse 20, uh, Naomi responds. She says, may the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. And so uh, Boaz, I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm kind of j- jumping over some areas here. Boaz sees Ruth, he, he shows kindness to her, he makes sure they leave a little extra behind. He's like, don't, don't pick up all the barley, leave quite a bit behind for Ruth and make sure she's in the good fields. And, and he looks out for her. And so um, Naomi sees this kindness and she says, he's one of our closest relatives. He's a family redeemer. We don't have family redeemers in our in our day and age right now. Um, at, like we talked about with uh, life insurance policies and things like that, they can pass to whoever you choose. You write that in. But if if a woman was left uh, husbandless and was in a bad situation, there was often a family redeemer. That means if the woman never had children, someone who could supply for her, who could provide for her, who could be her future, she could be married to the next closest relative that could provide her with children and covering. And that was called the family redeemer. And so um, in, in in this situation, it was considered a moral obligation of the man. If you read back in the book of like uh, uh, of Genesis, there is a story, it's a tragic story, where someone was supposed to be the family redeemer for someone, and he didn't follow through. And the next person that was supposed to be the family redeemer did not follow through, and this woman was in dire straits. In this situation, uh, Boaz was the family redeemer, and it was not just like, it would be really nice if you helped out, but it was a moral obligation to. And so, this is important that we understand this, because... Ruth finds out who Boaz is. She knows the rules, and so does Naomi, of how this should happen. And Boaz could change their circumstances in an instant. In chapter 2, it says that he was a wealthy man. So there's this wealthy man that has a moral obligation to rescue Ruth and to rescue Naomi. They could have immediately gone to him and knocked on that door and been like, Hey, family redeemer, here we are. Where are we moving in? Show us the spot. Right? Like, this is, this is your responsibility. We are your responsibility. But what does Ruth do? Here's what it says in verse 23. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field, fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. And then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in the early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. Did you remember I said underline when, she, when they arrived in the spring? Now she's worked through the spring, into the summer, into another harvest. She knows who Boaz is, and yet she continues on. She continues pressing on. Instead of trying to capitalize on the relationship, Ruth remained at work in the field. She didn't seek the quick fix. How many of us are quick fix people? There's an answer. I want the answer, please. Thank you very much. This is tough. I don't like picking up barley. I don't like gleaning. This is, this is embarrassing. This is humiliating. I don't like the situation I am. But Ruth remained faithful in the small moments. Ruth remained faithful. She didn't push her agenda, but she waited on God's timing. She waited for God on God's timing. You see, trusting God includes trusting in His timing. If we truly trust God, that means not just that He has the big picture in mind, but also trusting His timing. You see, when we don't see the big picture, we often will try to mash the pieces of the puzzle together, right? We'll say, I, I see where this is going. I see where this is going. Let's get this moving along. Come on. This is, let's get this going, God. And, but rather than trusting His actual timing, His, his pace. And so when God is saying to, uh, to us, and He was probably working in Ruth, a consistency in the now. A consistency in the present where am i right now when god is saying i want to see you develop and trusting me in my timing in the now in lamentations chapter 3 verse 25 and 26 it says the lord is good to those who depend on him to those who search for him so it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the lord to wait quietly for salvation and this is exactly what ruth was doing she was waiting for the lord Waiting for her salvation. You see, Ruth's discipline is what made up the difference in her relationship with Boaz and her relationship with God. As she gleaned in those fields, her relationship with Boaz grew. As she glean, gleaned in the fields, it was more than just a, a forced upon relationship, but there was a depth of relationship that was able to operate there. And, it's so, and the same is true for us. As we progress in our spiritual lives, it doesn't, it's not just something that happens in a moment. It's not just something that happens in a, in a week high, maybe a summer camp that we go to, or a marriage retreat, or a seminar we attend. It's not those big moments, but it's in the consistency of quiet moments and mornings at the table with Jesus. Whispered prayers in, t- in times of, of just seeking his face. And the word continuing to pursue him faithfully. This is where this happens. See, it's in, it's in the multitude of small moments that these mountains of faith can become built. It's in the faithfulness in the small moments. And so Ruth faithfully waits on Boaz and waits on God until she receives direction for the right timing and the right moment and then Naomi comes to her and she tells her how when and how to move forward, she says. It's time to take off your widow's clothes. It's time to take off the clothes of mourning. Put on a nice dress. Uh, clean yourself up, and I want you to move forward in life with the new things God has in store. Here's how to. Here's how to step forward. And so um, we know the story, and, and Boaz ends up marrying Ruth, and he redeems her family um, through this through this story. Um, and so this this incredible thing happens in verse 13 of chapter 4. It says, "So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife." And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. And then the woman of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. Now Naomi took the baby, and she cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. And the neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. So the story then comes full circle and it ends with the joy of birth. Did you see how the story opens with famine and death and brokenness and loss? And then this story comes all the way back around and Naomi is holding this child of promise once again. She had never had a grandchild and it says she holds him to her breast as though it were her own baby and God sees this bigger picture before they see the big picture. When they experience this painful loss, when, when Naomi is not only left a widow, but she has to see her own children die. No parent would want to see their children die before their own time. She sees her sons die and she's going, this makes no sense. I'm in a land far away. I've been cast away from, from my my own homeland. I've lost everything. In the small pieces, it makes no sense. But God saw the big picture. And he was drawing it together for good. You see, God holds it all together. He holds the big picture and he will finish what he starts. So let me tell you, this church, don't give up on God. Because he hasn't given up on you. He knows what the big picture is. He's the creator of it. He holds it in his hands. So on your chairs as you came in this morning, you may have noticed that there's a puzzle piece on it. Um, If you didn't notice, you might want to check your bottom later. You might have something stuck there. But... uh, You don't have to keep this puzzle piece, but it could serve for many of us as a reminder. Because we live in the moments, right? We live in in the zoomed in macro moments where we're just stuck looking at this, going, what's the big picture? Where are you taking this, God? And we, just like this puzzle piece, we don't know what that full picture looks like, unless I held up the box lid for you. We don't know what that picture looks like. We don't know what it all is. We're just looking at pieces at times. But do we trust God with the big picture? And for some of us, those pieces may be very sharp and painful right now. They may be a very dark piece. They may be confusing. You may be going, I don't know where this is leading, and I don't know how it fits in. God does. God does know how this puzzle fits together. It may be a dark piece. It may be a painful piece. It may be unclear. How does it fit? Where does it fit? But do you trust God with the big picture? In Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I think about that 40,000 foot view, right? When you're up in an airplane. When we're down low and looking at something. I love Google Maps. What did we do before that? You see suddenly what what where we're sitting and how this sits in the greater plan and the greater scheme. God sees everything. He knows it all. And while we're stuck in this little tiny moment, it can feel so confusing. But trust Him with the big picture. Trust Him with the overall. So let me ask you this morning, church, is there any area of your life where you're struggling to understand the why? You're in this moment, we're in these snapshots, these small pictures, and you're going, God, I don't understand why. Let me challenge you to this. Start changing our prayer to, God, teach me how to trust you that you hold the conclusion rather than, God, show me exactly what's going on. Because I can tell you, a lot of my prayers are, God, I need the solution and I need you to show me what's going on here. But to change the verbiage of that prayer to say, God, teach me to trust you with the big picture in this step that you have me in right now. With this piece that I'm holding, teach me how to trust you from this moment forward. In the daily small decisions I make, God, Let me choose to glorify you in every decision. The other question is this. What's one area of your spiritual life that could use more consistency in those small things? What could use more consistency in those small pieces? We're not looking for the big leaves. We're not looking for the, I went to a conference and now I have it all figured out. But in the day-to-day consistency, sitting with Jesus, where in my life do I need to see that consistency develop and grow? Just as Ruth had the consistency of waiting on God, waiting on his timing, waiting on when he was going to come through, where does that consistency need to be developed in us? And the last thing is this. Just like Boaz stepped up in Ruth's life as a kinsman redeemer for his family, there's this thread that goes all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to the New Testament, and that is this, that God sent Jesus as our redeemer to save us. All of us, the Bible says, are sinful. We've been separated from God. We're powerless to change our world on our own. Just like Ruth and Naomi, we're stuck unless someone intervened in their world. Someone needed to step in and save them. That someone in our life is Jesus. You see, all of us are in a place where we need a Redeemer, and Jesus sacrificed His life so we could have eternal life. I love how First Peter puts it. In uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, for, for you know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We weren't bought with, with uh, the cash app or, or, or some sort of digital uh, currency or anything like that or even silver or gold. Jesus redeemed us with his very own blood because nothing we could do could save ourselves but yet God sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we could have eternal life. So this morning before we close I want to give you this opportunity with our heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're in this room right now And you've been lost, you've been, you've been going, I can't, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a wilderness, and I need a Savior. I, I, I realize I can't do this on my own. I realize that, that my story, whatever that big picture is, I can't redeem it on my own. I need a Savior, I need a Redeemer, and that's you. And you say, I need this person who came and died for me and gave his life for me so that I could have eternity. I want him to save me, if that's you in this room before we move on for anything else in the service I want to give you that opportunity so with our heads bowed and eyes closed if you say Pastor Brent I want the Redeemer to come and save me I want to receive Him into my heart as my Lord and Savior I want the hope of eternity I want the hope that you're talking about right now if that's you will you raise your hand really high and I want to pray with you yeah, 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 yeah I see those hands yes, I see that hand thank you thank you you can put your hands down right now Church, there's several people in this room right now that said, I need the Redeemer to come and rescue me from myself, from my own sin, from my own failure, from these areas of my life that are broken. I need that Savior you're talking about. Right now what we're going to do is we're going to just pray a prayer. Last week I talked about that Jesus didn't just come to save us, but He came to be our Lord. And that means we give him our life. We no longer live life on our terms, on our, for our purposes, but we say, Jesus, all that I am is yours. So right now, we're going to pray a prayer of faith that says, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe what you said is true and that you saved me and I give you my life. And also, from this day forward, I will follow you. So right now, everyone in the building, everyone in the house, if, if you raised your hand or you didn't, we're going to pray this prayer together. Say it out loud. Say, dear Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that you came to redeem me and to save me. So today I give you my heart. From this day forward, I will serve you as my Lord. Thank you for giving me a hope. Thank you for giving me a future when I couldn't do it myself, when I couldn't save myself. You reached down and rescued me. Thank you for rescuing me, Jesus. Thank you for loving me, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. You are my king. You are my Lord. In your name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Heaven celebrates with those that raise your hands this morning to say, Jesus, be my savior. Be my redeemer. In just a minute, Pastor Melissa is going to come forward. And I say pastor because she is now Pastor Melissa. And she's going to lead us in our connection cards. But what I ask is this. If you did, raise your hand. I ask you to please let us know that you did that because we are putting together a class that's going to be walking through the first steps of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to now follow Him in obedience and baptism and getting connected with the, the body of Christ, the followers of Jesus that are in this room, all right? So please, on your connection card, there's a digital connection card, mark that on there or on your paper one, drop it in the offering um, plate on the way out the door, but let us know you filled that out because we want to connect with you and help you along that path. Pastor Melissa.
0: All right. Hey, everyone. I'm Pastor Melissa. those connection cards, and there was a lot to think about. Let's let's try to write down and ponder through some of those points that Pastor Brent made. What is a decision that is happening in your life right now where maybe the path isn't so clear to you? The puzzle piece you're looking at is so close. What are the things rattling around in your head right now? What are the directions you're facing? What is the way that maybe looks a little more we want to pray through that with you. Our elders get together every week and pray for those. We want to be with you in this decision that you're facing. So take a minute right I'd just like to send everyone out with a blessing this morning dear jesus i ask you to be with this congregation as we go out in this world and we spread your light your love your joy i ask you to fill us with courage fill us with your joy fill us with your light as you go out this week and in your name jesus that we honor you in every little thing we do this week in jesus name amen you are dismissed everybody